Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's the most eagerly anticipated trial of the year, making headlines before it's even begun. On Monday, after 16 months in solitary confinement, Ghislaine Maxwell will finally face a jury. The British socialite faces six counts of sex trafficking and is accused of grooming young girls. She pretended to be a woman they could trust. All the while, she was setting them up to be sexually abused by Epstein. There have been a few pre-trial hearings already where we've caught glimpses of Ghislaine Maxwell and glimpses of the huge media interest this trial will attract. There's one in particular in which she was brought in sort of shackled and we've seen the sort of famous pixie haircut that she had, had grown out and her hair had turned grey and she, she was showing essentially all of the effects of, of being in a very, very tough prison for the last year. But when she appeared again last week, she seemed transformed. As she prepares to go before a jury, she, she looks in a lot better shape. It looked as if she dyed her hair. The Mail on Sunday carried an interview in which she said she'd been cutting her hair with nail scissors and that the guards had been rather impressed by this. But in any case, she looked like she was sort of getting ready to face a jury. After years of speculation and allegations, Ghislaine Maxwell will finally have her day in court. So what is she actually accused of? And what can we expect from the trial as it unfolds? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Ghislaine Maxwell on trial. That appearance and, and the length of her hair, you know, it made global headlines. In a way, is this just a taste of what we can expect when the trial begins in earnest on Monday? I think so. I mean, there's such fascination with her. Will Pavia is the Times New York correspondent. You know, the sort of person she is and what her motivations may have been, how she'll attempt to defend herself from these really, really horrific allegations that have been made against her. Will's going to be in court on Monday, watching as the trial begins. Any sort of development at the moment just immediately becomes news in a way that I haven't really seen for a lot of court cases in New York. Maxwell's facing six charges. They include sex trafficking and allegations that she conspired to entice and transport minors to engage in illegal sex acts. 
she currently faces up to 80 years in prison if she's convicted. So she could certainly spend the rest of her life in jail if, if she's convicted on, on these charges. Charges which she and her lawyers categorically deny. For Will, Monday won't be the first time he'll be watching Maxwell in court. I remember seeing her actually at that first bail hearing in Manhattan. Because of the coronavirus, it was all done remotely. But if you wanted to see her in, in the video link, you had to go to the court. And we all sat in what's usually the jury room on these seats that were six feet apart from each other. Just before the hearing began, she popped up on a massive video screen at the front of the room. She apparently didn't realise that, that she could be seen. And there was a big debate among the reporters. We were like, is that her? That's her. That's definitely her. And you know, people sort of talking about it. And she was sitting very close to the screen and it looked as if she was just making sure she looked all right before the court appearance. So she was in a very small... Yeah, she was in a very small sort of prison cell and she looked fit and tanned and she looked in very good shape and she was sort of smoothing her eyebrows. <laughs> it looks as if she was just sort of getting her game face on before this bail hearing. You were hearing. watching. <laughs> yeah, it was a very strange experience. And it, was, and it was strange because this was the woman where no one knew where she was. Before she was finally arrested, Ghislaine Maxwell seemed to have disappeared, with the media trying to track her down all over the world. There was all kinds of speculation in the New York papers that, oh, she's, she's in France where she has a passport and they can't extradite people in France. Or there was a report saying that she was in Israel and there was another report that she'd left by boat. And then suddenly here she was. During the court hearing, there was a very striking moment where one of the prosecutors said that she had not been entirely open with them, with court officials, when she was being brought in and that she had not revealed the name of her spouse. And we all thought, well, who... Who is her spouse? <laughs> and apparently, since her family have said they, they didn't realize that she was married, we certainly didn't. And, you know, eventually her, her spouse sort of emerged as this shipping magnate called Scott Borgerson, with whom she'd been living in, in Massachusetts in, in another sufficiently tucked away location, a large white mansion that, that, that looks out onto the sea. Her lawyers maintain that she always kept in contact uh, through them with prosecutors and that she had no intention of fleeing because she's innocent of these charges. And Will, just in case people have somehow forgotten, I mean, take us back and just remind us who is Ghislaine Maxwell and how does she fit into the Jeffrey Epstein case? So Ghislaine Maxwell is the youngest child of Robert Maxwell, the press baron. He's sort of this larger-than-life figure. He, in the UK, builds up a publishing house called Permagan Press that eventually acquires Mirror Group newspapers. So he becomes this grand press tycoon. The Maxwells live in, in Headington Hill Hall in, in, in Oxford, and he has a luxury yacht, which he names the, the Lady Gillane. And in 1990, he comes to New York at the peak of his powers, attempting to expand his business empire. Today, he is the stormy petrel of the international big business world, called Captain Bob by those who like him, the bouncing check by those who don't. And he buys the New York Daily News, which was once one of the great newspapers in America, and he's found dead a year later. Robert Maxwell's body was found at sea. He had somehow fallen off his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine. 30 years on, and with all the scandal that followed, 
it's sometimes easy to forget just how powerful and influential a figure he was back then. But when he died, Margaret Thatcher, President Ronald Reagan and President Gorbachev joined the clamour of world leaders expressing their grief. Israel even held a state funeral for him. After his death, this huge scandal erupts over the, the fact that he's essentially stolen money from the Mirror Group pension funds. This scandal spilled over into the lives of Robert Maxwell's children, in particular, his sons Ian and Kevin, who were accused and later acquitted of involvement in the fraud. Meanwhile, Jelaine Maxwell has moved to New York, where she's making her name as a kind of a figure on the social scene. She gave an interesting interview to, I think, a French broadcaster in the early 90s, where she's sitting on a bench in Central Park, and she talks about second chances and, and hoping to make her life in America and seeing that as part of the American way. She seems to have been very popular at parties. People talk about the fact that she had a slightly dirty, slightly naughty sense of humour, that she was tremendous fun, essentially. And she fell in with Jeffrey Epstein, this slightly mysterious financier who had somehow managed to acquire an enormous house on Manhattan's Upper East Side and was seen as terrifically wealthy and friends with other wealthy people. What people have said is that while Epstein was perhaps an awkward figure, she seems to have arrived and, and provided him this entry into Manhattan society, which he, he might not have had otherwise. She was his master of ceremony. She said in, since in a deposition that, that she would have liked to have been considered his girlfriend, but she was never quite sure if she was. But in any case, he hired her to look after some of his properties and to sort of manage them. And at the same time, they had this very close relationship. It was back in 2005 that allegations were first made against Epstein by the mother of a 14-year-old girl who accused Epstein of molesting her daughter at his home. Epstein was eventually charged in Florida. The police found dozens of, of young girls who'd been brought to his mansion in Palm Beach and had essentially been either sexually assaulted or in some way sexually abused by Epstein. But in 2008, he agreed an extraordinary deal. Financier Jeffrey Epstein received a jail sentence that critics have called unusually lenient. He only served 13 months in a county jail on a work release program where he could go back to his office every day. Wow. So he was released, and, and there was a sort of lingering scandal from that. Epstein, meanwhile, tried to make his way back into Manhattan society. And as for Ghislaine, Although she distances herself from Epstein after the 2008 charges. They're still in touch. She lives not far from his place on the Upper East Side. There's still these kind of lingering questions. What did she know? How involved was she? Since then, some of her accusers have said that she was regularly going out to sort of procure young people who might be of interest to Epstein. Virginia Giuffray, who makes these allegations against Prince Andrew, says in court papers that she was Epstein's madam, that she was procuring young women for Epstein. So all of this, of course, just leads to this deep sort of fascination. She's portrayed as this Cruella de Vil sort of character. And there's all kinds of questions over her behaviour. Then, in 2019, Epstein was charged once again. Billionaire businessman Jeffrey Epstein was arrested in New York Saturday on federal charges related to sex trafficking. Charges allege that Epstein sexually abused young girls by enticing them to engage in sex acts 
for money. The allegations in this new case go back as far as 1994. And the Manhattan prosecutors say that there are possibly 50 girls that, that were drawn into his sex trafficking ring. Epstein was arrested this past Saturday evening at Teterboro Airport aboard his private jet that had just landed from Paris, France. He's arrested at uh, Tepra Airport in New Jersey. Epstein was taken to the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan. And he's thrown into one of the grimmer federal jails in New York. He's there until August the 10th of 2019, when he's found dead in his cell. Breaking news this hour. Officials say multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein has taken his own life. Officials say that his death was an apparent suicide. And of course, that creates another raft of conspiracy theories and speculation that he'd perhaps been murdered in order to silence him and that he had information on various powerful people. Meanwhile, the focus shifts to Ghislaine Maxwell, who was seen as his closest associate. Today, we announced charges against Ghislaine Maxwell for helping Jeffrey Epstein sexually exploit and abuse multiple minor girls from the period of 1994 through 1997. And Will, now she has been charged. She's been in solitary confinement for a while. She's now finally coming up to the trial, which starts on Monday. A lot of the attention it will get will be because of the Maxwell name. It'll be because so many of the rich and famous are sort of drawn into the web of the events described. Actually, though, at the heart of all of this are some young women, some victims who could give evidence. Talk us through the four witnesses we can expect to hear from. Annie Farmer, who's referred to in court papers as minor victim two, and she's now a psychologist. And is very bravely waving anonymity. Yes, well, she has spoken of it before. And actually, Annie Farmer alleges that when she was 16, she was brought to Epstein's ranch in New Mexico. He has an enormous ranch there, or he, he did have one. And, and that was in 1996. The farmer sisters have said that essentially their parents, their mother, had the impression that she was going to this ranch as a sort of student retreat and there'd be other students there. But when she got there, it was just her and Epstein and Maxwell. What prosecutors allege is that Maxwell essentially tried to make her feel comfortable by taking her out, taking her to the cinema, taking her on shopping trips. There's an allegation that Annie Farmer's made that Epstein went to the cinema with her, tried to grope her in the cinema, and that Jelaine Maxwell then gave her a massage where she was topless and essentially groomed her for abuse by Epstein. In the initial bail hearing, she spoke very powerfully about the fact that Maxwell was instrumental in Epstein's abuse of young girls. There have been some new developments in Annie Farmer's case in the last few days. It's been established that whilst she was below the age of consent in New York, where she lived, she was above the age of consent in New Mexico, where the abuse is alleged to have taken place. This complication may affect some of the charges, but the judge has said the allegations could still provide evidence of the charge that Maxwell conspired to entice teenagers into Epstein's world. Victim number one is said to have met Maxwell in 1994 when she was 14. 
And it's a similar sort of pattern of behavior. Prosecutors say the Maxwell befriended her and they took her to the cinema and on shopping trips. And the Maxwell attempted to, quote, normalize inappropriate and abusive conduct by undressing in front of her and, and taking part in these group massages of Epstein in which both Maxwell and the teenager would sort of engage in, in sexual acts with Epstein. And that Maxwell was present for some of the abuse that she suffered by Epstein. So that's wow. victim number one. Victim number three appears to be British, and we say that because prosecutors say that Maxwell and Epstein met her in London and that they knew that she was under the age of 18 at the time and that Maxwell encouraged her to give Epstein massages, knowing that Epstein would engage in sex acts with her during these massages. Now, in response to that, Maxwell's lawyers have said that the alleged victim was 17 at the time and they don't accept her claims but even if they did she was above the age of consent in the UK at the time so what this victim is alleging doesn't actually contain any illegal conduct at all and prosecutors have sort of argued back that th this was an experience with a much older man which the victim experienced as traumatic and exploitative and abusive so hmm. there are sort of question marks over that alleged victim in fact Judge Alison Nathan has announced this week that she'll instruct the jury that they cannot convict Maxwell over this part of her alleged conduct. And then in March of this year, they suddenly issued a new indictment in which they added a, a fourth alleged victim to the case. And wow. that broadened the time frame of the case. So initially, the, the charges were from 1994 to 1997. But this fourth alleged victim was talking about conduct between 2001 and 2004. So more recent. Um, and so it's more recent and it was very significant at the time because although Prince Andrew is not a factor in this case, Virginia Giffray, who accuses Prince Andrew of having sex with her in London, sort of at Maxwell and Epstein's behest. Allegations that he denies. She alleges that happened in 2001 and she was working for Epstein in some capacity and, and was flying with Epstein during those years. So it suddenly opened up that prospect that the Duke of York might be in some way drawn into the case. In, in any case, in the case of that minor victim, prosecutors say that Maxwell met her when she was 14 and that sort of a similar thing that she groomed her by discussing sexual topics with her and that this victim was required to give Epstein massages and that she was paid several hundred dollars each time, sometimes by Maxwell, and that both Epstein and Maxwell encouraged her to recruit other young women who would give these sexualized massages to Epstein. So that's the fourth victim. Maxwell's lawyers have denied all of the charges against her. So those are the charges and the alleged victims we'll hear from during the trial. But what is Maxwell's defence and what evidence are we likely to see? We'll have more in just a moment, but first. Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerins, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For defenders of Ghislaine Maxwell, she's a mere pawn in a game where the bigger pieces have already left the board. They argue that prosecutors only took an interest in her after Jeffrey Epstein died, and she may not have been in court at all if Epstein had been alive to face his own trial. It's hard to say whether they might have prosecuted her anyway if, if they'd convicted Epstein, but it's hard to sort of argue against Maxwell's own lawyer's contention that she is sort of being prosecuted in lieu of Epstein, that, that they, they focused on her after the scandal of his death. So they're arguing that this is almost a proxy trial. This is sort of people who want to see Epstein being punished now holding Ghislaine Maxwell responsible. Yes. With Epstein's death, all of these victims of his could not see him being brought to justice. There was actually a hearing after he died when, when the judge closed the case and they were all allowed to come forward and sort of speak and say what had happened to them and, and talk about that. And several of them had actually by this point named Maxwell as someone who was involved in the abuse. Do we know who will be representing both sides in court? Who were the lawyers in this case? On Maxwell's side, she had two attorneys in Colorado who were sort of fighting all the civil cases before she was charged criminally. She's since hired other people. So she had Laura Menninger, who's a former Goldman Sachs analyst who trained at Stanford Law School and, and was a prosecutor in Denver. So she's one of her lawyers. Jeffrey uh, Pagliuca is another veteran trial lawyer from Denver. But then since the case was moved to New York, she's added Mark Cohen, who was a former federal prosecutor and was involved in a quite high-profile mafia case. Christian Everdell, who was one of the people who was involved in an investigation of Joaquin Guzman, the, the Mexican kingpin who was known as El Chapo, yes. the, the sort of drug lord. It's quite a pedigree. Yes. And more recently, Bobby Sternheim, who is a very, very respected trial lawyer. She defended an associate of Osama bin Laden, who was tried in 2015 for the bombings of embassies in Africa. And she has been an interesting figure. She has been making these weekly trips to visit Maxwell at the Metropolitan Detention Centre in Brooklyn. And she kind of writes with a sort of rhetorical flair. She makes these very eye-catching kind of claims. And she writes very well. She wrote recently that the visits to Maxwell in jail were conducted, she says, under the most humiliating circumstances that I have ever experienced in many decades of federal criminal practice. And she said the surveillance rivals scenes of Dr Hannibal Lecter's incarceration as portrayed in the movie Silence of the Lambs, despite the absence of the cage and plastic face guard. She said that, you know, the conditions of detention are reprehensible and utterly inappropriate for a woman on the cusp of turning 60 with no criminal record or history of violence. So she has been quite a powerful advocate for Maxwell in court papers. Yeah. And I think she will probably be leading her defence when the case begins on Monday. And what about the other side? 
On the prosecution side, one of the prosecutors is Maureen Comey, who's actually the daughter of James Comey, the former head of the FBI. And oh. she started there in 2015. And she's handled various cases involving sex crimes against minors. She was actually also part of the team that was going to prosecute Jeffrey Epstein before his death in in 2019. The others, Alison Moe, who was also on the Epstein case and has moved across onto this team prosecuting Maxwell. You've got Lara Pomerantz, who was a Fulbright scholar. You've got Andrew Rohrbach, who was uh, a graduate of Yale and Harvard. So you've got a very sort of distinguished team of prosecutors. And do we know what the sort of the key bits of evidence that the case will rely on will be? I mean, there's been lots of talk, for example, of a black book. Yes. Well, of course, the, the main thrust of it will be these four minor victims saying what they allege happened to them. Then we will have two extra minor victims who are not part of the charged behaviour, but will sort of bolster it and sort of suggest a pattern, it appears. You'll then have experts. Both sides will call these experts to sort of testify on whether or not the jury should be able to rely on the evidence provided. And then there's all these things that were seized from Epstein's mansion in Palm Beach, which will also be entered into the record. But one of the things is this famous black book, a butler of Epstein attempted to sell this book and it, it was seized by the FBI and became part of court proceedings. And it was made public and, and there were all these contacts of the great and the good in it, this, this Rolodex. Now, prosecutors have said in court papers that this is actually Maxwell's contact book and that it contains numbers for her family members. It also contains contact details for Prince Andrew, or it did at the time, and, and for sort of other sort of celebrities and, and potentates. So it's an interesting piece of evidence. Her defence have said that they don't see the relevance of it and that they're not sure of its authenticity. Prosecutors say that its provenance is very clear because it was seized by you know the FBI and because we have this story of, of the butler trying to sell it and that also they will have someone, a former employee of Epstein, testifying that it was actually Maxwell's contacts book and that the house rules of the Palm Beach mansion were that there had to be these two sort of directories beside every phone, one belonging to Epstein and one belonging to Maxwell. And this was Maxwell's book. So it seems as if it, it, it will be used to show that in her contacts book, she had all these alleged victims of Epstein. So that's going to be part of the evidence against her. And then also... You know, there'll be various statements uh, that seem to come from emails and things like that, which will be used by prosecutors to attempt to show a pattern of behaviour. One of the, the interesting things recently in, in court papers was that they said that she'd sent these various emails setting up dates with, with sort of, they cast them as sort of prominent men. So setting up dates with women. And the prosecutors say that this shows that Maxwell was someone who regarded sex as a currency, which could be used to curry favour with people. Now, her defence lawyers say that's ridiculous. These were just emails setting up people on dates, friends of hers, and they're all consenting adults and it's got nothing to do with the case. But that's one of the things that prosecutors would like the jury to see. In earlier trials, you know, there were other co-conspirators who were named who weren't Maxwell. Is this, you know, is this the beginning of, of a whole raft of trials? Will we expect to see other people being drawn into this soon? It's very interesting. I mean, <laughs> there are some victims who sort of said that they don't understand why she is being prosecuted and no one else is. 
Maxwell's own defence team have said that other people have been named in the past by these alleged victims and not Maxwell. There is also sort of this, this persistent suggestion with Epstein that some of his assistants were themselves victims. And it looks as if the defence may perhaps advance that argument in the case of Maxwell. And do we think there will be any mention of Prince Andrew? It's very hard to say. I mean, in the past, in civil suits against Epstein, one of the things that alleged victims have said is that this was a person who was friends with Prince Andrew, who was friends with these powerful people. And so in that context, perhaps we might see Prince Andrew being drawn into the case as someone who's made Epstein more fearful to his young victims. Most of the case revolves around allegations that seem to be before Prince Andrew was regularly in contact with Epstein. But we'll see. He may well be named in the case. You've also written recently about how her family, who during this Epstein phase seemed to take a bit of a back seat, they've sort of come back to the fore in the last few months. Tell us about their sudden reappearance. They have. I, I don't think it was a very natural role for them necessarily. Uh, Kevin and Ian Maxwell were involved in this trial in the 1990s in which they were acquitted. That's the Mirror Pension Funds trial when the fraud scandal erupted following their father's death in 1991. And since then, they and, and the other Maxwell siblings have all gone their separate ways and, and sort of moved to different countries and, and have kept their heads down, essentially. And Kevin and Ian Maxwell actually started this sort of anti-terrorism group in 2018, and, and they gave an interview to the Sunday Times when that happened, which was sort of the, their first in many years. But with the arrest of Jelaine Maxwell, there was a period in which we didn't sort of hear much from them, but round about the spring when Maxwell was then charged again with a second indictment and she still hadn't got bail and she was still in this awful jail in Brooklyn where she was essentially under conditions of solitary confinement, partly because of the terror among prison officials over what had happened to Epstein and, and the fear that there might be some sort of repeat of that. It's clear that she's suffering and also she's been re regularly refused bail. They then sort of start to push back. A brother of Ghislaine Maxwell has told this programme that she cannot get a fair hearing when she goes on trial in New York. Ian Maxwell says 18 months of negative reporting while his sister has been held in isolation in jail could prejudice the jury. They, they launched this website. It's called Real Ghislaine. It tries to show a different side of her and it talks about the sister they know and they try and humanise her. They show what she's reading in prison and there's also this Twitter feed, which is connected with the site, which kind of takes on other causes, talks about, you know, police brutality or, or sort of racial injustice. And, and they sort of cast her as this person who is suffering this grave injustice. She hasn't been convicted of, of any crime. And yet here she is for more than a year now in the most, I think all of us would, would acknowledge she's in pretty dreadful conditions in a prison before she's had a chance to have her day in court. And Ian Maxwell in particular has given interviews about his sister and, and sort of his outrage at how she's been treated. The way in which the authorities have chosen to proceed against my sister uh, and to lock her up in isolation is wrong. It is an abuse of her human rights and an abuse of the due process that has taken place. Her presumption of innocence has been trashed completely. 
So she is deemed guilty in the court of public opinion. And that is not right. So they've sort of come out of the woodwork and attempted to defend their sister. And is this all about making her more likeable? I understand her lawyers believe that most juries not only might assume things about her guilt or her innocence, but actually just wouldn't like her as a character. Her lawyers had certainly worried about that. I mean, one of the jury questions was whether people had something against wealth, people who are wealthy. So that's something that the jurors were asked about specifically by the judge when they were choosing a jury. And so you would assume that the concern is that people will see this person living this lavish lifestyle and will in some way perhaps resent her for that and perhaps assume the worst. So yeah, that, that, that's certainly part of it to try and put a human face on her as much as they can. I, I think that's part of a very deliberate strategy. And what do we know about the, the jury selection for this trial that starts on Monday? Because I know in America that's a very different process. It is. They, they took about 600 jurors. The big problem for them was trying to find people who hadn't got an opinion about the case. I mean, everybody has heard of this case. Most people have heard of Jeffrey Epstein and there's been such intense coverage of it. And so essentially, it, that's okay if you've heard of the case. It's whether or not you've made up your mind. That's what they're, they're looking at. And so they, they answer all these questions in a questionnaire, and then they're brought before a judge where they're sort of questioned again, and the judge tries to see if they have any potential prejudices, and the lawyers are both watching this. The defence and, and the prosecution, in fact, are allowed to rule out several people without showing a reason. So they can get rid of certain jurors they don't want sitting on the jury. But it's a very interesting process. One of the things that happened during jury selection was that, that um, at least one person said that he'd, he'd met Epstein personally, and that person was ruled out. There was somebody else who was asked whether he had anything against wealthy people, and he sort of chuckled and said, they basically keep me in business. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, you know, there's been some sort of interesting back and forth, but the jury selection won't actually be finished until the day that the trial begins on the 29th. And Will, for you, you've followed this case for quite some time now. What are you hoping to learn from it? I mean, I think it'd be very interesting if Maxwell took the stand. And, and spoke in her own defence. I'm, I'm not sure that will happen because it's a very risky move, but it would be very interesting to see her talking about the allegations against her. It seems clear that her defence lawyers are going to try and discredit her accusers and to suggest that there was some sort of pecuniary interest that they had in, in bringing these extraordinary allegations against her. But I, I, I think anything that really speaks to her relationship with Epstein and what she thought she was doing, if, if she isn't guilty of these charges, what she thought was going on and what she knew of what was going on, because it just seems a very peculiar thing to claim that she had no knowledge at all of, of Epstein's behaviour. So I, I think all of that will be interesting. The, the other thing is the evidence that comes from alleged co-conspirators from other employees of Epstein who might sort of give evidence against her. All of that, I think, is fascinating. But I think the main thing is just to see how Maxwell defends herself. Will, how long do we think this trial will last? Well, it looks like it's going to run for about six weeks. So it starts on the 29th. It looks as if it's going to run through December. And the judge has sort of set out plans for it to run 
during the week between Christmas and New Year, and actually for it to run and potentially until the middle of January, it, it seems as if we'll be there for a while. And, and, and of course, we don't know how long the jury will take to decide on this. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times New York correspondent, Will Pavia. You can find all of Will's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producer today was Arlie Adlington. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes, if there are any stories you'd like us to follow up, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. <laughs>